Hello, I'm Dan Mullins. This is a weekly podcast about the Camino de Santiago, or the Way of St. James. A series of pilgrimages across Europe culminating at the remains of Christ's Apostle St. James in the magic cathedral in the northwestern Spanish city of Santiago de Compostela, St. James under a field of stars. If you're interested in the history of the Camino, listen to week 62 of my podcast and my interview with the Spanish-based U.S. philanthropist Nancy Fry. She explains the history and culture of the Camino and what it means to be a pilgrim. And you'll hear that term a lot in this podcast, a pilgrim. Leila Gifty Akita is a fantastic writer from Ghana in West Africa, and she wrote, Praying is holy pilgrimage. Doesn't get much simpler than that. Praying is holy pilgrimage. I don't think you necessarily need to be kneeling by the bed each night saying the rosary. Maybe it's about putting thoughts in place to tell yourself what you want. Or, for some of us, it's about a connection with God. For some, quiet reflection. Others, meditation or manifestation. The Camino has been described as a spiritual and mystical journey, a pilgrimage, as Leila Gifty Akita said. Praying is holy pilgrimage. Well, what about someone who prays for a living? What do they make of the Camino de Santiago? Father Richard Thompson is a Catholic priest at Mary Help of Christians Parish in South Woden in Australia's capital city, Canberra. Father Richard is on the line. Welcome, Pilgrim. Thank you, Dan. Nice to be with you. Let's start with some facts and figures. Um, Where did you start? How long did you walk? I started at St. Jean-Pierre de Port in uh, the other side of the Pyrenees uh, on the 29th of September, uh, 29th of August, I'm sorry, last year, 2018. And uh, I walked from there, which is the traditional uh, French route or Francaise route, uh, to uh, Santiago. And then um, I went on to Finisterre, but I didn't walk to Finisterre and Muxia. I didn't have the times, but um, I, I did get out there, did a day trip. Do you remember where and when you very first heard about the Camino? I first heard about the Camino in uh, history studies uh, in the seminary, actually, and it sort of slipped away in the past and then somehow or other it just kept resurfacing, main, mainly through people that had done it. I tend to be a bit of an outdoors sort of person and I like a bit of hiking and all that sort of thing, uh, cycling, and I just bumped into more and more people, of course, that had done the Camino or done really significant walks. So my brother did uh, several very good hikes that I would like to do, but they wouldn't be what you would call a pilgrimage. And this one had, uh, the Camino de Santiago had a, a flavour in it that appealed to me and my nature and my personality, which was something which was a bit deeper than doing something just athletic and something that was touristy. Uh, that really wasn't my aim at all. Did you pray as you walked? Yeah, yeah, I prayed every day. In fact, I would begin the day by mentioning people that I told before I left Australia that I would pray for them. So they are written down in my little book. And uh, there's a lot of people in my life who have uh, good, bad, and ugly things happening in their life. So they all got a mention, and, and I said that I would uh, carry them with me. So, yes, I did. I prayed constantly. Yeah, I'm going to get to that in a, in, in a little while, actually, the, the intention and, and your role in yeah. your community because as a priest you would carry a lot of that baggage, as it were. 
But but before we get to that, what did you love most about being a pilgrim on the Camino? I I think that the thing that I liked most was, and you'll find this on so many your listeners, that for all the preparation uh, that I put in, it was turned upside down right at the very beginning. <laughs> so I took at least two years to get this together, and uh, I tried equipment. I went uh, hiking around a hill just between uh, my parish and the next parish over the hill in Canberra called Mount Taylor. It's really only a hill, but it's a significant hill. And I would walk the five kilometres around that with my backpack, trialling a backpack. I'd had 10 kilos of oranges in there because we were told to take 10% of your weight. Should uh, The backpack should be 10% of your body weight. And I'm not 100 kilos, trust me, but I thought I would take a little bit more just for training's sake. So I did all of this for two years and then right down to what socks to wear and how much blister stuff I should take and do all of this. I got to my starting point at St. John and the airlines lost my luggage. <laughs> I had nothing. I had an Emirates, not too bad mouth, Emirates Airlines, but I had an Emirates emergency kit which had a toothbrush in it, a toothpaste, some looked like winter pyjamas or Mormon underwear. I don't know what they were. And a T-shirt and that was it, what I had. Uh, luckily, I left Australia wearing my hiking shoes that I'd broken in uh, because I kicked them off on the plane anyway. That, but that's um, – so I had the most essential thing was the shoes and uh, what I wore on the plane. But that's all I had. Uh, so all that planning went out the window, literally. <laughs> and, and so when did you get that your stuff back? I didn't ever get it back. No. Uh, whilst I was on the Camino. No, I had uh, – well, this might be a little bit interesting. <laughs> I don't know, Dan. But So what I decided to do was um, I'd been in touch with the airline and they said, yes, we think we've located it. Uh, where do we send it? And I told them where I was staying. But I couldn't keep staying there talking to an airline that thinks that they found my luggage because the longer I stayed there, the less I was going to be walking – it was costing me money to stay there. I needed to get going. So what I eventually did was I did the first day's hike to from Saint-Jean to Roncesvalles, about 27 kilometres up over the Pyrenees. Uh, and this might have been God's blessing. It was a silver lining. <laughs> That's the way I took it anyway. So I got to uh, – did that hike uh, without any luggage. I had nothing. I had a water bottle. And off I went. <laughs> I did wash my, my uh, gear that I flew out in. And, um, yeah, so I, I did that. But I needed to get to Roncesvalles by uh, a 4 o'clock in the afternoon and then catch a 4.15 bus back to where I started from, back over the Pyrenees at Saint-Jean, uh, to pick up my luggage, which I was hoping the airline had delivered. Uh, anyway, I missed the bus by 15 minutes at Roncesvalles after having had a very pleasant walk. It was great fun. And then uh, rang the airline. No, they hadn't found my luggage. Rang uh, the place where I was staying to see whether they still had a bed for me. And this was all costing me money because my overseas travel SIM card was actually in my luggage oh, that was lost. No. So this was costing me a mozza. And, and I was conscious of that. And now I had to get a, a taxi back to where I started from which is kind of funny in itself because it took me all day to walk. 
and it's about a 30, 35 minute yeah. trip by taxi, <laughs> of course. Um, so I got back to where I started from, 40 euro poorer plus all the phone calls because the taxi, uh, wouldn't, he wouldn't give me a receipt because I'm thinking now I've got to try and get some insurance claim back on this. Got back to St. Jean, um, no luggage, uh, went up to a shop where I had met some owners uh, when I first arrived at St. Jean. They had a mountaineering shop. I got talking to this lovely couple there and, and said that this is my story. What time do you close? They said, well, we close at 8 o'clock, but we'll stay open till 8.30 if you like. So I uh, thank you. I, mean, I said, now the next thing I need is I need a, a pharmacy, a chemist, to get two prescription drugs that I have. They're not opioids. They're simply things for cholesterol and blood pressure, which my doctor in Australia had said it'd be good if you could stick with them. Not life-threatening if you did, but it'd be good if you could. And I had three months of those drugs in my um, oh. luggage, which never arrived. So that's the thing. I've now gone back to France. I found a pharmacy. And in Australia, of course, with these things, you have to get a doctor's appointment. You've got to get the prescription and then you go to the chemist and blah, blah. Uh, so I took my what uh, the spare ones I had with me and in my best and worst French explained that my medication for three months was lost and I really need this stuff. And they just went to the back counter and bought out three months' supply of everything I needed. <laughs> <laughs> I bought it over the counter. Great story, little, even a little bit cheaper than Australia. So my medication was sorted. I was happy then. And, of course, then I bought some things like block out, um, a couple of little blister things in case I needed them to replace what I'd already packed. Back up to my mountaineering shop and then just said, right, this took what took me two years is now going to stand about 40 minutes. Um, is now going to take me 40 minutes. First place I'd like to start is a backpack. Um, and then I went through, I need two pairs of that, two pairs of that, two pairs of this, two pairs of that. Oh. A, a, a good pair of sandals to let my feet breathe at the end of the day, and I'm done. So when I left Australia, my backpack was 7.8 kilos, which I thought was pretty good because that's almost spot on the 10%. But when I got my new backpack and the gear that I needed, uh, plus my meds, I was down to 7.2 <laughs> uh, kilos. So I um, did pretty well and then uh, stayed the night and then had to, rather than climb the mountain again to Rossaval, I had to get a bus back to my starting point, my day two starting point, which is exactly what I did. And then I started from Rossaval. I never got to stay there, though. Uh, of course, had my, um, uh, my credential stamped, but I never got to stay there, which is what one of the things I wanted to do. Yeah, yeah, well, you got a reason. But I didn't lose a day. I did not lose yeah, a day, yeah. and that was the what important What a story. Thing. That's amazing. Well, so where – Everyone's got a story on the Camino, haven't they? Oh, they sure have. Boy, <laughs> that's a story. Does anybody want to listen? <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the, the Catholic Church is very structured. It's an institution. Did you yeah. find yourself at times being Richard Thompson rather than Father Richard Thompson? I was probably um, well. This day and age, it's, it's it's a lot more common, I think, for me as a result of the royal commission and the, the sins and the crimes that took place in the church. I probably travel a little bit more incognito these days than what I ever did anyway. And not everybody on the casino on the Camino understands the spiritual or the religious dimension of the Camino. Because everybody does it in their own way for their own reason. Mm. Uh, for me, it was a mixture of all of those things. So I never dropped uh, my Father Richard business card out, as it were, until I felt uh, secure enough that um, I was going to be 
well, firstly treated with respect rather than ridiculed or somebody have a go at me because that's what happens in Australia. Yeah, yeah. As, as soon as you say uh, that you're a Catholic priest, my experience has been wonderful and affirming and the bad experience has been absolutely heartbreaking and terrible and it is, has reduced me to tears at times. So I'm a, a bit cautious about um, how I play that card. But for most people, once we get to know them, and you travel, you keep bumping into the same people a lot of the time, those whom you start with usually. And so in time, a relationship builds up. It's not just somebody passing. And then when that relationship is what I would say authentic, uh, so that means there's trust in there, um, yeah, I would then say, um, yeah, well, this is what I do. I've got a parish in Canberra and this is what I do. And people turn to priests in the most difficult of circumstances, the death of a loved one, a crisis, a mass for someone critically ill, and it might be the first time they've reached out to the church in some time. Did you find yourself offering counsel on the Camino? I did, I did, but in the most extraordinary ways, um, because what you're just talking about, Dan, is kind of the usual routine in the life of a priest. On the Camino, it, it came from people who were not particularly religious. Yeah. And I, I found that very affirming. Yeah. So the people who were would say, oh, this is my parish in South Korea or the States or England. I met people from all over the world. They would talk about their Catholic heritage. And that was a little bit routine. But most of the people that I got to counsel, as it were, were not even Catholic, probably not even Christian, a lot of them, um, at the start of the Camino anyway. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and so I found that very, very interesting. And just uh, I found it affirming because that's partly the reason why I put my hand up to try and enter the priesthood in the first place was not to be with people because of their religion, but to try to introduce people to the God that, well, I fell in love with. And I know that he was always in love with me, but it just took me a while to realise that there was a, a two-way relationship. How fascinating. You know, t- tell us about your motivation, your 33rd year of priesthood. And you said in catholicvoice.org.au, I should credit them because I was doing some research, catholicvoice.org.au. You said the Camino offered you the chance to review the last 33 years of ministry without the necessary distractions that are part of parish life. Did you feel you achieved that? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I had as an aim, as a personal aim, to do the Camino in my 33rd year of priesthood. Uh, Jesus uh, traditionally is understood to have died at the age of 33, and that was also part historically, as my understanding is, that the, the Camino was walked in 33 days, one day for every year of our Lord's life. And that's what I wanted to do in a kind of, not over pious way, but that was something that I had in my mind in the 33rd year of my priesthood. Uh, so I was able to do that, and I did it primarily after that motivation to unclutter myself of the, you used the word baggage a while back. Um, I wouldn't so much call it baggage. It's it's the, um, they, they really become resources for my life work. I just needed to unclutter myself of all of the, what had gone on and what was going on, particularly as a result of the Royal Commission, which is personally very, very draining for 
those of us that try to hang in there with our church and with our ministry. And this was a chance to just unplug a bit from that and recharge the batteries and get some clarity. What did you learn about yourself on the Camino, Richard? Uh, Dan, I think that the – I don't know that I learnt anything about myself, really. I probably reinforced some things that I always knew or believed about myself. One of them was that I do enjoy my own company. On the Camino, you're in company, but a lot of the time you're on your own as well, and you're certainly on your own with your thoughts. Uh, I loved that. I felt so comfortable out in the solitude, even when there were a few people around, and at days there were no people around on the paths that I took because I went, I went off the track a lot. Um, I just felt so comfortable. I always felt safe. Uh, I felt very in touch, really, with myself, uh, my understanding of creation and the creator. I know that sounds a little cliche, but it just was a real reinforcement that life is actually very, very good. It's particularly good for me, despite what some people might uh, see being thrown our way. Uh, I just uh, I think it was a real affirmation and that life is truly wonderful. And what a blessed opportunity that I had to be able to, to do this. Um, that's, yeah, I think that's probably the main thing. Yeah. You'd say the Lord is leading you, but in many ways a priest is a leader himself, a leader of the parish, often the school and indeed the community. How did the Camino yeah. enlighten you to help you in your role as a leader? Uh, it just, as I said at the beginning, it gave me clarity about what's truly important so that when somebody says to me, oh, Father, blah, 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 and then part of me says, I think it may have been Mother Teresa uh, who said something like, well, will, will this really matter in 10 years' time? And I have a, an ability now, I think, to process things in terms of what is their real importance, not to diminish what an individual is going through at the time, um, and it depends what the issue is, of course, but just to really get a, a, a priority there about, well, yeah, well, is that really that important at the moment when you consider the totality of your life or what's going on? I think that's probably the thing in leadership that I gained the most from. As I review that, I mean, that's a very good question. Um, our leadership has always been challenged. So I, I rather like the idea of examining how am I going or how am I doing. You told Catholic Voice, people's stories motivate and fascinate me. Do you sometimes ask yourself why God chose you for this role? I probably ask myself that every day. It's a little bit up there. That, that, that question is a little bit up there with um, why do you do the Camino? I mean, that's the question that is asked yeah. most, most commonly, I guess, and that and how many blisters did you get? Yeah. Um, <laughs> by the way, I got no blisters. Oh, come on. <laughs> Highlight that. Not one. Not one. That's fantastic. So, it is. It is. Uh, so... The um, uh, I, th I think the, the 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 involvement or the relationship that you develop with people, I just find that so energising. Uh, because most of the people that are attracted to me or I am attracted to are just beautiful people. They've got they they've got their faults and their flaws, like I do, but they're just beautiful people. And once. In a while, you just need uh, to stop and take check and say, hey, listen, we're all in this together. Um, I'm not 
against or just because my opinion might be different, my experience might be different, but we're actually all in this together. Why God would choose somebody like me is probably because I'm ordinary, uh, not extraordinary, and I, I kind of think that's where I fit very comfortably. Yeah. You told Catholic Voice, I need such people and their stories, that is pilgrims, to add to my own. This has also been a serious time for me to bring others' stories with me and deposit any of their pain and sorrow at the cross along the way. You touched on that at the beginning of the podcast. Just yep, just, yeah. just, talk about that, if you wouldn't mind, the, the, the carrying of those other people's baggage in some ways, but, but really their emotions and their, and their stories. Dan, I'm not sure whether you've done the Camino or not, but there's a part of the journey, probably two-thirds of the way, in a place called Carucha de Ferro, which yes. is uh, the Cross of Iron. You may be very familiar with it. Yes. And the tradition tradition is built up nowadays where people place at the foot of this cross a stone, um, and it has a very beautiful prayer, which I commend it to your listeners, uh, one which I carried with me, and I don't know it off by heart. It, it simply says that, I, Lord, I place this stone at the foot of the cross of my saviour that this may be a symbol of the judgment in my life when my time comes that my goodness might outweigh my sinfulness something along those lines anyway and uh, so I had uh, done my hiking in Canberra uh, not a lot don't don't get me wrong I'm not an athlete uh, done my practice in Canberra and then I found a rock only a, it's a stone more than a rock, right at the top of Mount Taylor in Canberra in my parish. And I looked down and it was in between, uh, please don't be offended, in between three lumps of kangaroo business cards, I'll call them. <laughs> and I said to myself, that is the stone I'm taking with me from my parish for my people. And so I picked it up and that's the one I packed. Um, sadly, that stone never made it because it was in my luggage. Oh, of course. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, I didn't have that stone with me anyway. That's another story. And I then picked up a stone at the bus stop where I caught the bus on day two from Saint-Jean to go back over to Ronceval. You may remember I said I had to catch a bus back there. And while I'm standing there waiting for this bus, I looked down and I saw this stone and it just sort of said to me, take me, take me, or pick me, pick me like an (laughs) M&M. And I, uh, so I reached down, and that was a little stone I took with me. And it, it's, I know it's a symbol. So the fact that I didn't have my other stone, that's neither here nor there. It's not the thing that's going to get me through or break me on the Camino. It, uh, the stone was simply to remind me of the people that I said I would take with me and any of their woes uh, I will take with me and hopefully lighten them as I remember them on the way. So the stone was important to me, as was the... Uh, the scallop shell. Yes. Well, now you still haven't told us if you ever got your baggage back. I did get my baggage back when eventually, after $634 on phone calls to the airline, I, um, I told them to send it back to my office in Canberra, back to the parish, and it arrived back there three weeks after I was into the Camino. Oh, my goodness. Well, the, the reason being that I couldn't tell the airline where I was going to be. Yeah. They were saying, to me, well, where do we send it when we find it? Yeah. And I'm saying, well, that's the whole point. I don't know. I know the direction I'm going, 
and there's no point them sending it to the Pilgrim Hostel at Santiago for me to collect in a month's time. Yeah, uh, because I don't need it then. Yeah, and you don't need it. <laughs> you don't need it now anyway because you re- replaced no. everything. I did. I did, and off um, off I went. And the thing that I learnt in all of that was, despite what we plan ourselves, there's always somebody else in charge. For me, that God, God's in charge, I know that. Um, so I'm a passenger, let him drive the bus. And despite what um, I think might be happening, it's still not going to stop me. If my intention is good, and in the pilgrimage, I would hope that the intention is also holy for me. If that's good and holy, nothing will stop me. And that's absolutely what happened. Nothing stopped me. Fantastic. Yeah, I just want to step off the Camino for a moment. You served yeah. with, the, with the Australian Navy in the Gulf War, a chaplain. Yeah, yeah. And you were yeah, also yeah. on the ground. Yeah. I wasn't the only one. <laughs> no, but you, but you were on the ground also to help after the Bali terror attacks. How, That's correct, how yes. is any man or woman able to cope with being the soundboard for the hardship and brutality of war and terror? For me, and please don't think this is a cliche, I'm not meaning it to sound that way, if I didn't have my faith and my support group of friends around me, uh, there's no way I could do what I have done or continue to do. Uh, that's my go-to place is my firm belief in God that he does love me and he will not let anything uh, harm me. And secondly, uh, my, my support network of people. And, and that has been, this might be helpful to your listeners, that has always been a mixture I have looked at it in terms of the third, just like taking a good photograph. So a third of my support group are people who are really committed members of the Catholic Church, both national and international, and, and uh, so that's the one third. The second third are people who, uh, in, in terms of my working in the Navy, who are really committed to uh, the Navy or defence and, and uh, the cause of peace and uh, once in the naval environment, it was the uniform people who were very close to me, my really good friends, who may have had nothing to do with the church, but they were very supportive of my role in amongst them. And the third uh, element of people that uh, are my close friends are those that have got nothing to do with the church, those that had nothing to do with the military, but travel with me because I'm just me. And those three elements together, I think, give me a pretty good balance and I can go to those people, um, I, I think really any time uh, as a sounding board or as a place to dump and sometimes I do uh, and I, probably most of those people would know me better than most of my family. I come from a reasonably large family and some of my brothers and sisters wouldn't know anything much about uh, my life really and a couple of them would but um, the others probably wouldn't. So these friends are and supporters are the most important people in my life, truly. We can, we can hear the bird song in the background. <laughs> it's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. <laughs> Father Richard is on the south coast of New South Wales uh, speaking to us today, and we can hear those birds in the background. It takes us back to the Camino. You told... Com- having, my day, having my day off, Dan. Yeah, good on you, good on you. <laughs> my word, and we all need it too. Uh, you told Catholic Voice, for me, the Camino is a living metaphor for life. It requires faith, hope, and love. And the most important of these is love. When your parishioners come to you, and as I said earlier, they're often desperate for your guidance, 
How do they react when you say faith, hope and love? The most important is love. I uh, can give you an example, Dan, there. The, it's the way that we express ourselves, whether our, what our, depending what our concern might be. If it is not done in love, and sometimes that love, the better word is charity, if it is not done in charity, it comes across as bitter. And I would... Uh, I would always start myself, start with myself by saying, respond in charity. This person might be with me, and I've had this recently in, in my world. Uh, this person might be saying something that is quite hostile, but my response must be in charity. And in the scriptural term, you would say love there. Uh, don't respond with like hostility. And it's very easy, so easy to get drawn into that place when you're dealing with difficult people or people who are hurt, people who are angry. It's just so easy to become the thing that they despise. And uh, that infection, we have to be very guarded, I think, in the way that we protect ourselves in that way. And that's where uh, faith uh, comes into it again. Why are we scared of love? I think the experience that a lot of people have had in their life uh, is not what is portrayed in movies. It's certainly not what is portrayed in uh, songs. It's not what's portrayed in all of the, uh, the cards that you can buy for various occasions. The experience of love is good and bad and sometimes ugly. Uh, one of the beautiful things I wrote in the book I just put together on the photography I took in the Camino was, and I'll give this to you and your listeners, Dan, was that, People who need love the most often ask for it in the most unloving ways. People who need love the most often ask for it in the most unloving ways. And that's in the relation to, I got that from a, um, a mum who has difficulties with her eldest son and uh, he's quite a problematic child at times. And uh, that's the way she has to respond to him. And uh, I actually wrote that down in my little journal and popped that in my book. So I think that's very, very true. Those that often have experienced uh, love in many twisted ways, people would call it love, they experience it as hurt. But we must respond uh, despite the way. We must, be, we must respond in Charity must respond in genuine love despite the way that they express their lack of it. That's such a great answer. A priest is a good listener uh, and listening has been really your entire life. Did you enjoy listening as a pilgrim? I did. I did. I didn't um, want to get too caught up with uh, uh, my relationship with others being a cord that would hold me back or restrict me in any way. So uh, it just depends who I was talking with, what uh, what I was actually listening to. And the stories, I, I think the, the most listening I did were the stories of people's actions, not what uh, words passed through their lips, just the genuine kindness that was demonstrated by pe people on the journey. I think that was uh, that spoke so loudly to me. It, it crossed all barriers of race, of gender, of age, of religion. It was very affirming. It it talked to me about how good the world truly is, 
and then you can uh, when you you listen to people's pain a lot of the time you can see well i i know where that pain comes from i think and once we have identified the pain we can start to help people heal and uh, probably that's where my I, I fitted in on the Camino, I guess. But the actions actually spoke louder than the words, I thought. A, a pilgrim is a simple being, a small backpack, simple meals and a simple life. How has the Camino manifested itself in your life now back home in these last few months? Um, <laughs> this, your listeners will find this a bit odd too. Dan, I had a bit of a plan. I took uh, some long service leave from the parish and the Archdiocese of Canberra and Goulburn so um, I had something else to go to after the Camino, and that was uh, next to catch up with some friends of mine from my Navy days who live in Spain for six months of the year. So I was able to do that. I was also able to show a friend of mine in Spain, a friend of mine, uh, a little bit more of Spain that she had not seen, and she's married to a Navy mate of mine um, as well and uh so I, I always had that down the track and then of course once i finished that i was then going on another extraordinary trip that i have had on my bucket list and that was to get to antarctica and oh. i achieved that yeah yeah i know i achieved that as well and uh so there was always something more down the track and what i was able to do as a result of the camino but particularly because of my planning with the camino was just keep it simple my whole life was so, so simple, and I didn't need uh, any extravagances at all. And I, I just loved that, to live an uncluttered, simple life. And, and my life back in Canberra you know, has some complexities in it, uh, but I, I wouldn't say it was luxurious, and I don't want it to be. Uh, but I just appreciate the very simple things. I got so excited when I had accommodation once that had a fan in it on the Camino. There's a fan. There's a fan in the room. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> you get into a hostel. Oh, they've got seats. Wow. <laughs> because I lost all that stuff. <laughs> so, no, it was good. It was good. Yeah, it so, is good. It, what, do you, what do you truly need? What do you truly need in life, really? Yeah, that's right. A fan. Tell us about arriving in Santiago de Compostela. Well, I didn't have an expectation. I actually thought, um, and I know this will sound cliche as well, as many many people whom you interview about the Camino probably speak, is that it was always going to be about the journey and not the destination. So I didn't have uh, a great expectation once I arrived in Santiago. And mind you, by the time um, I got there, I was tired uh, too. So the accommodation was firstly the most important thing for me and by this stage uh, I had sorted where I was going to stay and it was an old seminary an old minor seminary a great big thing and my travel buddy who was with me um, had sent the luggage on to this place this seminary where we were staying so we knew where we were there so that she could do that without getting uh you know, having to find somewhere to stay. Yeah. So she sent her luggage on. This is my mate's wife from the Navy. And and uh, so we've turned up at our accommodation and, of course, Act 1, Scene 2, her luggage isn't there. Oh, no. <laughs> After having done all this. Anyway, the, uh, it's a great story because I said, well, look, the first thing we've got to do, we've got our rooms sorted, we've got our rooms, the, the great old seminary rooms, just reminded me of being back at the seminary, little tiny rooms. 
and uh, it was wonderful. So we found our respective rooms. Um, I put my gear in. I did my washing, and then I said, I'll meet you down at the bar, which is what you do. So we went down there, still no luggage, still no luggage, and then, of course, talking to the reception desk at our accommodation, trying to find out, well, where is it and how can we get in touch with it? So they, their Spanish is so much better than mine, of course. Uh, we rang back to where we were, and her luggage was still there where we'd, we'd spent the night before oh. outside Santiago. How do we get it? How do we get it? So we ended up catching a taxi back to where we started from that day. So in one sense, I finished it the same way I started. <laughs> our our taxi, but it wasn't my luggage. Our taxi driver was the wildest man in Christendom. He was wonderful. And he had on in the music in his car – he had on Kylie Minogue playing and he's saying, Kylie Minogue, Australia, Australia. So we were singing Kylie Minogue and then Anastasia came on back to pick up my friend's luggage and then bring that back to the seminary where we were staying. And then it was the next day to go down to the uh, cathedral for the mass. So when I arrived, I didn't do the mass that day. I did it the next day, the pilgrim mass. So by that stage, uh, we'd been through the issue of the night before and uh, got a good night's sleep. And so I was able to approach it with a kind of clarity, I guess. Uh, I didn't race into the square out the front of the cathedral and kiss the ground. Um, I just approached it gently and was actually as captivated by the people as what I was uh, by the building and the history and the heritage. So it was a pretty balanced moment for me, I thought, once I got into Santiago. You, you weren't tempted to to go out the back and talk to the Monsignor and join them on the altar, say Mass? What I had done, story of my life it seems, Dan, what I had done is I had written before I left Australia to get permission to say Mass uh, once I arrived there for the pilgrim, uh, pilgrim Mass, as many priests do. Yeah. Um, I had no response. I had written again, and then I had sent emails as I had journeyed through the Camino and still no response. And I had my written letter of who I am from my archbishop in Canberra. So it's a letter, I had it in Spanish and I had it in Latin and English uh, to uh, prove that I wasn't some fake. So I had all that there. But by the time I actually arrived, I I, uh, sat with the people in the Mass and I didn't have the opportunity to go in and say, by the way, these are my credentials. Can I say mass with you? I just didn't have that relationship with those people that I would have liked to have had. So I was comfortable to be with the people, actually, and yeah. to share, share in the Eucharist that way. Yeah, yeah. And I, I can imagine that would have been quite a fitting finale too, a, a nice way of winding it up being one of the people. Yeah, it was. It yeah. was. And and. The people are what make the Camino too, other than the no people. But but just looking around and seeing the joy, the solace, uh, there were some tears on some people. The anxiety that some people had because they needed to get up close yeah. and they'd be pushing and shoving. The security people are doing all their bit. And I wasn't used to any of that. I wasn't used to crowds or noise or anything. So it's not a settling experience, the for me anyway, the, the Pilgrim Mass. It was uh, a little bit uncomfortable. It was just the, the anxiety that people had about being up close. Well, I, I, didn't, uh, I didn't actually need all of that. Yeah, yeah that can be a bit, bit overwhelming, yeah. 
Uh, I've only got a couple more questions. What have you yeah. told? What have you told your parish, your people, your flock? What have you told them about the Camino? I have not told them uh, a great deal, simply because I didn't want to come back and say, "Hey, I've been away for months, and this is what I've done." And uh, it just becomes a little bit repetitive, a little bit boring if you're sticking to the same thing. And, Dan, to be honest, I don't want it to be actually about me. So what I have done was I tell uh, people about where I took them on the journey. So my placing the stone under under the Iron Cross at Cucha de Fiera was important. Uh, and the conversations that I had, I only just recently spoke to them about uh, – uh, my reviewing that little statement I made about love, that people who need love the most often ask for it in the most difficult ways. Um, and each weekend there is something I can tie into the Camino, but I don't, I specifically don't get there and say when I was on the Camino. But God blesses me in pretty amazing ways. The last, uh, two of the last three funerals I've done in the last three weeks are people who have done that Camino. And so the Camino was a very important part of their life, and they were much older than I when they did it. And so I was able to express to those participants in the funerals um, the, the, my true understanding of what both of these gentlemen went through and did when they did their Camino. I was able to identify very closely with it. So, What's next? What's next? That's funny you ask. Well, what was next for me, as I said, was Antarctica. So I, yeah. I wanted to get to the seventh continent, and I've now done it. So that was uh, box ticked, and I'm actually looking at the moment of uh, doing the Arctic. And uh, uh, so then I will have made a cross right across the world. <laughs> so oh, that's lovely. what I'm looking at, but it's, uh, it's, a, it's not an easy operation, that one either. And, of course, one of the other things I'd love to do is Machu Picchu. I'd love to climb Machu Picchu yeah. in South America and yeah. do that uh, four-day hike there. Uh, but we'll see how that goes. Um, I don't think it's a smart move to come back and start advertising to everybody. Oh, and by the way, this is my next trip because all people in the pews here is, is he ever here? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he has that much time off. That's not me. I'm, I'm, I'm not over in um, World Youth Day, you know. I'm actually here working. <laughs> <laughs> and do you, can you see yourself going back to the Camino? Yeah, I can. I can. Um, would I do the same one? I just, I probably would, uh, but there are so many Caminos, so many ways to Santiago, um, and I'm a bit of a coastal person. I love the water. Um, I might do the Portuguese way, although that's only two weeks uh, from Porto, or I might do the one that goes um, up through Salamanca, uh, through Bilbao, along the coastal region of northern Spain. I'm just not sure. Um, I'm not going to do it immediately because I, I just need to let all of this sink in. And what has been great therapy for me in reflection is putting together the photos and writing bits of a, a story and bits and pieces, and probably this interview too, to be honest with you. It gives me a chance to evaluate um, just exactly what have I done and uh, how amazing I think it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Richard, I, I'm a Catholic, born and bred, one of 11 children. 
Wow. Yeah, so I know all about it. I've actually stayed at St. Patrick's Seminary at Manly where you stayed. I've stayed in one of those little rooms. Yeah. <laughs> so I know exactly what you're talking about. But and yeah. I, I remember as a young fellow serving as an altar boy uh, in Toowoomba, and Father Hall right. used to smoke cigarettes on the sacristy steps as we waited for Mass to begin. Uh. <laughs> and he, he smoked corked-tipped Craven A's. And my big brothers oh, used dear. to say he smokes Craven A's because he's always Craven A. And the, uh. <laughs> the modern priest, much maligned, I have to say, is a vital yeah. thread in the fibre of communities all around the world. Thank you for taking the time to share your experience and thank you for the care and love and support you give to those who call you father. Buen, buen Camino. Dan, yeah. yeah, Buen Camino. And, Dan, thank you for this opportunity and thank you most sincerely for the affirmation. I appreciate it. Buen Camino. Buen Camino. My guest this week, the Australian Catholic priest Richard Thompson, Leila Gifty Akita, a writer from Ghana in West Africa, wrote, Praying is holy pilgrimage. Praying is hope. There's no harm in hoping, no harm in praying. And I hope you find what you're looking for somewhere along the way. I'm Dan Mullins. Until next week, Buen Camino.